Good morning. How are you doing? You look good. You look chilly. That's okay. We'll make it. I want to uh, take a moment and uh, and just say thank you to a few people over this season of being outside. The deacons, deacons, thank you for your help and your service uh, in setting things up for us. Yeah, absolutely. The added work uh, for the worship team, um, I thank you for your setup and your teardown and your time that you put in. Thank you, worship ministry and sound ministry. Um, yeah, the rest of the body, thank you. Thank you for your flexibility and uh, for being here. It encourages me and I'm sure it encourages those around you uh, to see the body of Christ gathered on Sunday morning. So this is the beginning of a, uh, of a new series. And when we talk about Exodus, uh, we think of epic things, right? We think of the sea being split. And uh, we, think of, um, we think of cartoons that have these epic scenes. I'm going to help you, okay? I got you. We think of epic scenes uh, that have been portrayed in both cartoons and in movies, and um, it's, a, uh, it's hard to match that. <laughs> we, can't, we don't have video screens, we don't have uh, subwoofers that are kicking in your face, um, making, making you feel the bigness of the, the epic story of the Exodus. But I'll tell you this, the, the story of the Exodus is true, and uh, and the story of the Exodus is big, it is epic. Not only uh, because it depicts big images, but it, it tells the story of God. So clearly in Exodus do we see the gospel uh, being foreshadowed for, for, uh, for us to understand what God was saying back then. We look through the cross today and we make no apologies. We look back through the work of the cross today and make no apologies and say, God was sending his Savior even back then. He was teaching his people about who he is and what he's like and what he's going to do to redeem people for himself. For sure, Exodus is a story, but it is the word of God. In a sense, it happened to them, but it is written down for, for our good and for our edification. And it is significant for us today. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6 say this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overflown, overthrown in the wilderness. Now these took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Absolutely, we step, we step out of the text to be able to study it, to be able to understand it, to be able to look at it as a historical truth, but also we step into the text because the Israelites are us, and God is our God. It is a story that happened, and it is true, but it is a story of us as well. 
Much of this epic story seems to have been written by Moses himself. On several occasions, God told Moses to write down his experience, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, Exodus 17, 14. Write down these words, Moses, Exodus 34, 27. When Jesus quoted from Exodus, he attributed what he was quoting directly to Moses. So we make no apologies to say that God used men like Moses to write down the truths of Scripture, to convey what God wanted us to see and hear today. Riken says this, he says, the most important thing is to receive the book of Exodus as it has been given, which means studying it as one complete story. Like every other book in the Bible, Exodus is the living word of God. It has breathed out by the Holy Spirit and written down by Moses for our spiritual benefit. What God has given us is not a random collection of documents, but a single book with a unified message. My last point of introduction is this. This is not a different story. We go through the book of Exodus and the story of God's redemptive history begins. And this is not a different story. This is a continuation of God's story. In Genesis 3.15, we hear of the promise of the seed of a woman. A son is going to come. There's one who is going to come in the lineage of the woman that is going to be a savior. It is going to be one who is faithful. Where Adam was not faithful, this son will be faithful. And then Adam and Eve, if you remember, were cast out. Cast out bearing garments, garments of a sacrifice. This, these sacrificial garments, garments, no doubt the symbolism there is that they walk out of the garden, the garden representing this sacrifice that has been done on their behalf. The picture of the bearing, the, the, the image of Christ as they go. Hebrews would say it this way, God spoke to our fathers in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken through his son. God brings the seed of the gospel to full bloom in the advent of Jesus. In John 1:14, in the word, say it with me, in the word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And there we get to see it. We get to see Him as, as He is. We get to look at Jesus. We get to see the Gospel in full bloom. It's not a different story. It's the same story. The story between Genesis 3.15 and the advent, advent of Christ is a story of God filled with promises and signs pointing to Jesus Christ, our Savior. This, my friends, this is the context of Exodus. Now this morning, I want to go through five major themes. This isn't going to be a typical exegetical sermon, but this is going to be five major themes that we find in Exodus. And the first one is this. Covenant promises. Exodus is filled with the covenant promises of God. God's promise of a seed or a son in Genesis 3.15 continues through the patriarchs and is developed further as God's son, Israel. God's son, Adam, failed. 
God's son Adam was unfaithful. And there was a promise of another son. And before that son comes, he sends a son. And he calls Israel his son. Exodus 4, 22 and 23 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. The last time God called someone a son was Adam, and the next son will be Jesus, the son in whom he is well pleased. God is keeping his promises. In Exodus 3, and then again in Exodus 6, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he restates the same covenant to Moses, emphasizing the promised land. Even before the giving of the law at Sinai in chapter 16, Israel's relationship to God is characterized by his promises. Let's take a moment to be reminded of the covenant promises of God that begin in chapter 12 of Genesis. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make of you, God is speaking to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 15, this covenant promise of God to his people is restated. He restates it saying that the offspring that come from you are going to be as many as the stars are in the sky. They will live in captivity for 400 years and they will come out with great possessions. Even back with Abram, this issue of captivity in Exodus was known. Then, if you remember, God cuts a deal. Remember the animals that were divided in two and half of the animal was put on one side and half of the animals put on the other side and, and God goes through the middle, making it clear that this covenant is made and kept by God alone. And he says to your offspring, he makes it very clear to your offspring, I will give the land of promise. What's going on? What's going on then in this 400 years of captivity? The promise has been made, but there's this massive gap between when the promises are made and the receiving of the promises. What's going on in this 400 years of captivity, and how is it related to the covenants of God? God is not only dealing. There's two things I want to make clear. God is not only dealing with the people of Israel. He's also dealing with the people who are in the promised land. There are people there that God is dealing with. Genesis 15, 13, and then in verse 16, listen to what it says. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land. That means they're going to be in the promised land, but they're not going to be settled there. They're only going to be sojourners in that land for a time. 
You're going to be sojourners in that land that is not theirs, and it will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. These people, the Amorites, they're in the promised land. The land that God is going to give to his people. And he needs to deal with those people who are in that land. And over this 400 years, the iniquity of the Amorites is increasing. Their sin is growing. Their idolatry and their, their turning from God is growing greater and greater. And they are not worshipers of the Lord God. Their iniquity is growing. And God is growing an army himself who's going to deal with the Amorites who are in the land. The second thing God is doing in this 400 years, God is keeping his covenant promise. Listen to this. This is kind of interesting. In Genesis chapter 12, do you know that Abram wanted to go to Egypt? There was a famine in the land, and Abram wanted to go to Egypt. Do you remember this? On his way, he lies about his wife. Remember that scene? God preserves Abram and Sarai and sends them back and doesn't allow him to go or stay in Egypt. One of the patriarchs. The second patriarch. Isaac. Genesis 26. There's a famine in the land. And God directs him specifically, you may not go to Egypt. I won't allow you to go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt. Genesis 46, Jacob. Interesting. Genesis 46, there's a famine in the land again. And Jacob's estranged son, Joseph, is already in Egypt. Remember? And God says this to Jacob. He says, God spoke to Israel in a vision in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. What is God doing for 400 years? God is making a great nation. He's making a great nation, one baby at a time. They go in with less than 100 people, and they, they turn into a few million people conservatively. God is keeping his promise. God is making a great nation. It takes him 400 years to do it, but God is keeping his promise. Then, after 400 years... At a miraculous moment of a burning bush, God breaks his silence with Moses. Exodus 3, verses 6 through 8 say this. I am the God of your father, he's speaking to Moses. I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you hear the recounting? It's not a different story, Moses. I am the same God. And I'm revisiting that covenant that I made with your fathers. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who 
were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And the story of God moves forward. The story of God moves forward with a covenant-keeping God. So what are we to glean? What are we to glean from this? <coughs> Excuse me. What are we to glean from this? This first summary statement, this first theme of Exodus. The first thing is this, <coughs> excuse me, promises take time. Promises take time. Process, my friends, process is a part of life. For the Israelites, they know the promise when they go into captivity, and it takes 400 years to develop even just a portion of the promise that God has made keep promises to go through the process of God's development of his people. And I even say, to go through the process of God changing us and keeping his promises with us takes time. And it's a process. Have you ever asked yourself the question, did the suffering people sustain themselves? Sustain themselves? Did, was there some way of them remembering the promises through this dark slavery, this dark time that they were going through, is that what actually sustained them? It's not actually recorded that way in scriptures. We don't, we don't have this, this moment where God says, and they remember God, and this kept them going through the 400 years. What we do see, however, from the first chapter of Exodus is this. The Egyptians were getting really nervous. There was a massive amount of people in Egypt. And they were getting really nervous. And, and, and this tells us one thing about the people of Israel. That they kept their identity separate from Egypt. <coughs> there was, I don't have COVID, believe me. <coughs> they kept their identity separate from Israel, uh, from, uh, from Egypt. There was something about them that was different. Yes, they were slaves and they had taskmasters. That was one way of, of depicting the difference. But there was something about their identity as Jewish people, as Israelites, as the people of God that was different. And as that different people grew and grew and grew in number, guess who was getting nervous? <clears throat> Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are getting nervous. They're getting really big. And there's something different about them. I would say that they did remember the promises of God. Even if it was in their identity, even if, the, if it was in their living different and separate from the people of Egypt, there was something about them that was different. There's an unspoken one. Israel had managed to maintain this identity <clears throat> and somewhere in their identity is their promise of a covenant keeping God 
you and I, we go through long seasons, don't we? Sometimes it feels like they're never going to end. I was talking with a brother this week about some very difficult decisions that he was having to make at work over the last couple of weeks. Not everybody gets to keep their job after this economy has done what it's done, and he's had to make some very difficult decisions with people. And as we were talking, we were counting all the ways where it felt like there was one difficult decision to make after another, and it just feels like the blows keep coming. And I would say as we look at the covenant-keeping God of Israel, we encourage one another. God's not done yet, brother. God's not done. He's not done with you, and he's not done with these people, and he's not done with your family. He's not done shaping your heart for glory. He's not done ferreting out the sin of your heart and your pride. He's not done being your God. As you walk through these difficult days, he's right there with you. I'm coming and keeping God up. If over 400 years there remains a glimmer of the power of the promises of a silent God, we can make it through 2020. We can trust God to keep his promises and rescue us in our isolation, in our disappointment, in our abandonment. We can believe God will save us from the bondage of our sin and our addictions. If they can trust God for 400 years, so we can trust God our days. The second theme is this. The name of God, Yahweh, is revealed in Exodus. The name of God, Yahweh, is represented in Hebrew by four consonants. Y-H-W-H. In our English translations, if you look in your Bible, the word Lord is in all capital letters. That represents the four letters of Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name for God. In Exodus, we learn of a very personal God. Moses anticipates being asked about his interaction with God and the return of Egypt in chapter 3, and then he, he has the same kind of conversation in chapter 6. Both times, God reveals himself as Yahweh, God, his personal God. Exodus 2, in verse verses 2 and 9 6 verses 2 to 9 say this listen to God's personal interaction with his people God spoke to Moses and said to him I am the Lord I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty but my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land of which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people, the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people. Listen to the personal God. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall be known. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. This is personal Yahweh Lord moving forward. Not in a CEO, I'm going to take care and manage the world kind of way. This is a personally engaged with his people kind of God, not like the gods of Egypt, the stone and wood who didn't move on behalf of the people. In Exodus, Yahweh draws near to his people. What a beautiful picture of our God. He hears the groaning of his people. He listens and he hears the groaning of people in pain. He, re he remembers his covenant. It's not that he ever forgot. It just means that he's going to act upon the covenant promise that he made to his people. He delivers people from being enslaved to tyrannical taskmasters. He redeems with an outstretched arm. He goes to, to great lengths to save his people. The full extent of his power and might are for his people. And he pulls us out to pull us near. He takes his people as his own. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Yahweh is the God of the Exodus story, and forevermore we call him Lord. Is this not the God of the gospel that we know? Has he not heard the groaning of our own heart? Has he not remembered his covenant promise to you? Has he not promised to save, and as you call out in faith and you cry out in faith, does he not listen and act on your behalf? He delivers and he redeems. You know, after this wonderful revelation of Yahweh God, this personal God, in chapters 3 and 4, the people bow down and they worship. And how could you not? A God who comes near? A God who comes near? They bow down and worship. But again, as this same Yahweh God is revealed in chapter 6, they didn't listen. They didn't want anything of it. Why? What happened between chapters 3 and 4 and chapter 6? I'll tell you what happened. Chapter 5 is all about taskmasters making the slaves build bricks without straw. Yahweh reveals himself, and the slavery gets worse. In six, chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Moses spoke, spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirits and hard slavery. This is the third theme of Exodus, bondage, slavery. We use words like enslaved, tyranny, held captive, trapped, controlled, forced labor. These are all true of, of people held against their will. These are also true of people before Christ. People were held bondage to sin. They're all held captive to sin and are in need of a savior to set them free. The reality of slavery of Israel was beyond anything you or I could ever imagine. Slavery is about power and dehumanization. For Israel, it was, it was about looking at 60-foot walls towering over them and all around them. Egyptian estates and massive statues, statues all made with bricks 
and who made those bricks and who was making me make those bricks. I was looking at the things I was creating for their glory all day long. And it was wrecking my life and wrecking my family. Bricks that you made with your own hands, day and night. Little show beyond breath and a place to raise your family. All for a harsh, evil taskmaster who stands over you all day long with rod in hand, saying, stop your laziness, get back to work. You filthy Jew. Slaves in Egypt were dehumanized to the point of being seen as animals more than human beings. Slavery is about no hope of getting out. Here's where you see it. Your dad was a slave. You're a slave. Your kids who are born in your family will be slaves and their children also will be, will be slaves. This is the picture of slavery in Egypt. This is the picture of bondage. This is a picture of people who unless God intervenes, all hope is lost. Have you ever asked yourself, God, why 400 years of that? <laughs> really, what did, was it really necessary? Why 400 years of that? Listen to what one commentator says. Speaking about Jacob, he says, Jacob embarked on a journey that led eventually to slavery, suffering, an attempted extinction of his descendants, and during those long, long years of distress, heaven above them remained silent. Even when the promise of rescue was finally fulfilled, no explanation was ever offered for the years of pain and loss. There is no scripture to point to to say this is why it took so long. The best answer I could come to, one that resonates with my heart, I found in my study by Graham Goldsworthy. He says this, throughout the Old Testament, possession of the land is presented as a shadow of the future reality of living as God's people in the kingdom. So picture that. The objective is that they're going towards the, the promised land. That's the picture of salvation. That's the picture of the destination that God is taking his people to. But it provided no vivid pattern of the necessary route by which any child of God enters the kingdom of God. It doesn't, it doesn't provide the, the pathway. How, how do we get there? How do we find that we, we actually have desperate need to be in the promised land? For this, he goes on to say, for this, some graphic, some graphic and unmistakable experience of redemption from an alien power was necessary. <laughs> See it in the picture of God's redemptive history, 400 years of slavery is what he used <laughs> It's what he used to envision what it's like for us to live in our sin. For your neighbors and your coworkers, 
to still be lost and walking in sin? What does it use to represent that in Exodus? 400 years of bondage, of slavery, of no hope in the world. It's the futility of Paul's Romans chapter 7, where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I, I don't do, those are the things I want to do. And he comes to this conclusion at the end of chapter 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the picture of bondage and slavery is the picture of us living and walking in our sin, of us demanding our own way, of us not loving God most. It's the place where we find ourselves bond in bondage to our addictions and to our solitude and isolation. It's the place where God and his spirit develops this rich, rich desire for a savior. I need a savior. And this is our fourth theme, redemption, salvation. Exodus itself means exit, departure, to get out. The Exodus was the great miracle of the Old Covenant. Thus many passages, uh, the Psalms and the Prophets, they all point back to the, the Exodus as a paradigm for, for salvation. This is the picture of what salvation looks like. You are in bondage for a long time and you can't get out. Christopher Wright says this, if you had asked a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you redeemed? The answer would have been most definitely, yes. And if you had asked, how do you know? You had been taken aside, sat down somewhere while your friend recounted a long and exciting story, the story of the Exodus. For indeed it is the Exodus that provided the primary model of God's idea of redemption. Not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New, where it is used as one of the keys to understanding the meaning of the cross of Christ. There is much in Exodus that points us to the Savior. The most important one is this, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Yahweh is called the Lamb of God in Exodus. But the Passover lamb is a prophetic re re representation of Jesus, our Savior. It was a lamb without blemish. Its bones were not broken. The blood was used as a covering for those who dwell within. It was a substitute for those inside the household. It becomes most clear when John the Baptist in, in, in John chapter 1 and verse 20, 29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And where the Passover provides a new beginning, the Lamb of God who shed his blood provides new life for you and I. Our fifth theme of Exodus is this, 
Exodus chapter 4 and verse 23. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God leads Israel out to serve him, to worship him, to walk with him, for life with him, for intimacy with him, for communion with him, to serve him and not to serve Pharaoh. Freedom from bondage is great joy, absolutely. Just that alone is great joy. But the joy is shallow and even empty if the bondage breaker is not the focus of our life here and after. Bondage to another master makes it impossible, impossible to serve God. You can't serve two masters. In biblical history, God has not dwelt with man. When we look at Exodus and we place ourselves in the timeline of Exodus, God had not dwelt with men since Adam and Eve. In Exodus, God saves his people and he will be their God and they will be his people just as was promised. This intimacy with Israel is only a foreshadowing of a time when a savior would come and not dwell in a tent made with hands, but Yahweh God, this personal God will put on flesh and he will walk among us. The first exodus from Egypt, the first exodus is an exodus from Egypt. But the true exodus is where Jesus takes his people out of the captivity of their sin and death unto freedom and to life. First Exodus is the beginning of moving Israel towards the promised land. The true Exodus, salvation from the bondage of sin, is moving all of his children into the kingdom of God where he no longer dwells in a tent, but he dwells in the hearts of men. This, my friends, is a rep representation of five major themes in Exodus. My hope and prayer for us, Rob, would you come up and finish us with a song? My hope and prayer for us in Exodus is this. I would encourage you to go back and listen to this sermon. Take some notes. If you didn't get to take all of them this time, look at these five themes. And, and as we go through the study of Exodus, that they would pop up to you. That they would, they would enlighten what it is that we're learning as we walk through Exodus. I'd encourage you to go get a go get a journal, a small journal that you can bring with you uh, on Sunday mornings that you can have all your notes in the same place from this study as we walk through Exodus together. <coughs> I'd encourage you to ask lots of questions. How many times have you been uh, you've been told you get out of something what you put into it? I would say as you learn, as you grow in your study of the Word of God, that you would write things down and ask good questions. That God would bless, God would encourage, God would teach you what it is to be the redeemed people that we are.